Today, I say to you that the challenges we face are real. They are serious and they are many. They will not be met easily or in a short span of time. But know this, America, they will be met. Hello, John Dennis here on Wednesday the 20th of January. Well, he may not feel much like celebrating today after the Democrats managed to lose what should have been one of the safest Senate seats in the country, the one held by Ted Kennedy in Massachusetts until his death last year. But it's now exactly a year since Barack Obama became President of the United States. So how has he fared in his first 12 months as the most powerful man in the world? Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk With me to discuss Obama's record as president so far, in Washington, Michael Tomaski, Guardian America's editor-at-large. In our Westminster office, Michael White, political commentator and former Washington correspondent. And with me in the pod, Afwa Hirsch, our legal affairs correspondent. Well, Barack Obama went out of his way in his inauguration speech a year ago today to damp down expectations. Michael White, are you disappointed? No, and I think it's silly to uh, be other than uh, acknowledging that he inherited the presidency in enormously difficult circumstances with enormously raised expectations because the uh, Democrats took control of both houses of Congress. I was in New Zealand on Inauguration Day last year and I got up at dawn, sunshine coming over the Pacific, to watch the president on the steps of the Capitol. I wouldn't have done that for many recent presidents. I seem to remember JFK. But it was, as you say, a pretty downbeat speech. And so it should have been, because on the ticker tape, uh, uh, underneath uh, the president talking, I seem to remember Carlos Slim, the Mexican telecoms billionaire, buying into the mighty New York Times because they're running out of money. And I also think it was Fiat buying into one of the big uh, Detroit motor firms, General Motors, perhaps, I can't remember. And I thought, boy, has this man got a lot on his plate. And he's very ambitious. And he's taken more issues on than he was forced to. He's taken on healthcare most prominently. That was a choice. Afghanistan, the Middle East, Iraq, uh, uh, Guantanamo Bay, all those things were in his entree uh, left by George W. Bush. And uh, how's he done? Well, he has been disappointing in some respects. Of course he has. Uh, And we still don't know whether he can deliver uh, the politicians and bend public opinion to his will. But uh, by and large, uh, the economy is ticking over. A year ago, we thought it might go right down the pan. Uh, He's making progress in all sorts of areas. I'd say on left or right, it would be a fairly innocent or foolish or short-sighted person who would write off Obama yet, although I agree with him when he told off the Nobel Committee for saying it's too soon to make a judgment either way. So he shouldn't have got the Nobel Prize either, and nor should he be written off. Michael Tomaski? I agree with quite a lot of that. You know, there is disappointment, and I suppose I'm a little disappointed, but I'm disappointed at at, uh, the political situation in the United States a bit more than I'm disappointed at Barack Obama personally. And I think a lot of liberal disappointment is misplaced, and uh, I suppose to some extent understandable because people, it's your first reflex to think, well, he's the president, he ought to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And he was elected uh, by a pretty substantial margin, and it felt at the time, felt at the time, like it was a moment of, of uh, profound uh, uh, change and, and, uh, and opportunity here in the country. But circumstances have shown that those feelings weren't quite right. And the reason, there are several reasons those feelings weren't quite right. 
some decisions Barack Obama has made and his administration has made, uh, suppo I suppose constitutes one of those reasons, but there are more important reasons which have to do with uh, uh, the structural situation of, of politics in the United States. The institutional uh, character of our Congress, particularly our United States Senate, which makes it almost impossible uh, to pass any meaningful legislation. It's, it's so uh, indescribably different from your parliamentary system. I can't emphasize that enough, particularly to, to British listeners. There's that. There is the, the shall I say, the uh, psychological uh, constitution of the current Republican Party, uh, which is uh, resistant to compromise at all, uh, you know, on basically every uh, important matter. And then there are the problems Michael mentioned, the real-world problems, uh, the economy, uh, first and foremost, and, and uh, all the foreign policy issues. You know, we never mentioned George Bush's name anymore, but I'm glad Michael did because, you know, <laughs> this, this, was, this was a real, several disasters we're left waiting for Obama. So, uh, you know, there's, disappointed, uh, there, there's disappointment. I suspect over the next year there will be, uh, at least on the liberal side among Americans, arriving, uh, a, a process of arriving at some kind of accommodation with that disappointment and soldiering on. Well, how has Obama shaped the rest of the world in his first year as president? One of his priorities has been to re-engage America with a peace process in the Middle East. Here's the assessment of our Middle East correspondent, Rory McCarthy. A year ago, it all looked so promising. A new president in the White House and one who spoke urgently about resolving the Middle East conflict. Obama appointed the US Senator George Mitchell to be his point man, Mitchell a figure who had succeeded in Northern Ireland and already had closely worked on the Middle East. But within a few weeks of the start of Obama's term, there was a new government elected in Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu became Prime Minister at the head of a staunchly right-wing coalition, one that was closely allied to the powerful settler movement in the occupied West Bank. Obama moved quickly and boldly. He called on Israel to halt all construction in settlements. After all, that was an obligation Israel signed up to long ago in the US roadmap, but one that it had never fulfilled, for today nearly 500,000 Jewish settlers live in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Even Hillary Clinton delivered the same message. She called for a stop to settlements and said, not some settlements, not outposts, not natural growth exceptions. They were strong words indeed. However, Netanyahu was not ready to concede. He refused Obama's demand, and the US administration seemed to have no response. There was some slight concern within Israel. After all, the US is Israel's most important ally, and no political leader here wants to be seen risking that friendship. But in the end, it was Netanyahu who won through, and Obama's policy that looked diminished, to the puzzlement of many. In the autumn, the Israeli Prime Minister eventually agreed to a partial, temporary settlement freeze, but it's not been enough to draw the Palestinians back to negotiations because they saw that freeze for what it was, a gesture so constrained by the details as to be almost meaningless. Today, construction in East Jerusalem proceeds apace, as it does in many West Bank settlements where 3,000 homes and all public buildings are still being constructed. And yet Israel has won not criticism, but praise from Washington. That is a crucial achievement for Netanyahu, but it means the creation of an independent and viable Palestinian state is as distant a dream as ever. George Mitchell is back in the Middle East in a few days to continue his quiet and persistent work, but it will take a tremendous act of diplomacy to make any headway. Rory McCarthy. 
Of Afwa, um, Obama vowed to restore America's moral standing in the world. One of his first acts, of course, was to promise to end the uh, Bush-sanctioned torture and close down Guantanamo. Yet, Guantanamo is still open. Yeah, I mean, I really there's two things I really want to say in, in response to what um, Michael White and Mike Tomaski said. I think one is that the general excitement about Obama's election, it's important to remember that, that this is not to undermine the legacy of things he's done since he came into office, but a lot of that excitement was just about the fact of his election. And um, at the time, people hoped that what happened subsequently wouldn't undermine that because it wasn't really about what happened next. It was about the fact of him being elected. And predictably people haven't made that distinction. So the kind of hype and unreasonably high expectations that flowed from the excitement of his being elected have now created a level of disappointment. Um, But the second thing that that I would say, and this relates to the question about the moral standing of America, is that in respect of that, I wouldn't agree that he didn't raise expectations in his um, inauguration speech. In fact, he, he raised quite high expectations there, talked about, you know, this commitment to the rule of law and it being a new dawn for America's respect for um, civil liberties. And I think that was always going to be difficult. And the thing he's he's been most criticised for in that respect since taking office is the fact he hasn't closed down Guantanamo Bay. Obviously, there are reasons why he hasn't closed down Guantanamo Bay. It was never going to be a logistically easy thing to achieve. And he's come under a lot of criticism for promising something which so far, and it's... it's um, nine years now since Guantanamo Bay was opened. He hasn't been able to deliver that. Um, But then on the other side, we've had decisions like um, prosecuting Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in the federal courts in New York, which came under very heavy criticism from Republicans, but which many people agree was absolutely the right thing to do and does send a strong message about the commitment of Obama to using the the legitimate federal process for trying acts of terrorists. And I, I think it's 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 easy to underestimate the significance of a decision like that. Michael White, well, can I bring you in here? You what you were nodding in agreement to that. Well, uh, yes, I was. The the these the symbolic decisions like the uh, like the tr- trial in a proper uh, U.S. court is a great break from uh, Guantanamo, where uh, which will eventually be declared unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. I have no doubt about that at all in the long run. And many good American, brave American lawyers have fought it all the way down the line. Uh, but don't forget, uh, in the disappointment uh, stakes, one thing nobody's touched upon here is that uh, the foreigners in Prague and in Cairo and everywhere else he went turned out for him like a rock star and applauded his great and uh, beautifully uh, uh, cadenced uh, speeches, but they didn't actually deliver for for Obama. Uh, You know, the Arab world hasn't shifted. He offered an olive branch to Tehran and the government in Iran has misbehaved and consistently spat in his face. Uh, Many people say the Chinese did that in uh, Copenhagen. Certainly in uh, Copenhagen, the Olympic Committee did it to Chicago. These are all choices people can make. The Europeans asked to send more troops to Afghanistan and, you know, risk getting killed. There weren't too many of them rushing to do that. Take people from Guantanamo Bay who might be a bit risky. None of us did that for Obama. So we kind of like him, but we're not putting out for him. And that's another cross he's got to bear. Perhaps he's naive. Perhaps he believes too much in the power of uh, a rational thought and rational persuasion. Certainly one domestic criticism is he doesn't show passion enough and urgency enough. He's too cerebral to connect with the American people at effective moments. We saw that a bit after the uh, underpants bomber in Detroit. But uh, Michael Tomaski, you know, is this sort of cerebral Obama um, going to be a problem? Because, you know, his po- possible uh, political opponents when it comes to the next presidential election might be um, the antithesis of that. Uh, I think I know who you mean. <laughs> no, tell us. Who is that? Who, is, who could this possibly be? It's Fox, Fox, News, Fox News's latest star signing. 
Yeah, I don't. I, I I still think it's probably a bit of a long shot that that Sarah Palin will be the Republican nominee, but she could well be. And and in any case, uh, uh, the the larger problem for Obama than than Sarah Palin personally is a a difference in the way the uh, Republican and Democratic parties and conservatives and liberals communicate with people. And uh, and this has been often observed, and, uh, and Obama is not the only Democratic uh, exemplar of this, although he's the current one and in many ways the most, uh, the most striking one. Uh, but Republicans have a, have, a, have a much surer knack of, of, of how to grab people. Uh, they go for the gut, and Democrats go for the brain, to put it simp- simply. <laughs> uh, and this, this has been, uh, this has been a, a difficulty for the Democratic Party for, for some time. And, and it is a difficulty for Obama. And, and I do think that he came into office. You know, I, I wouldn't say, you know, naive has pejorative connotations that I wouldn't, uh, uh, wouldn't ascribe to him because he's, he comes from the world of Chicago politics. He's not stupid. Uh, so I wouldn't say naive, but I would say, uh, you know, um, overly optimistic about the ability to sit down at a negotiating table with Republicans and strike a balance on a big issue like uh, reforming the health care system. In uh, on which the Republicans would uh, would you know uh, play fair and 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 have uh, seek to have their input and, and seek to be involved and seek to work out a compromise uh, that had a little bit of everything that both sides could live with, which is the traditional way uh, legislative horse tra- horse trading happens. But it doesn't really happen that way in this country anymore because uh, because the the parties are just too divided. I think Obama felt that he, by dint of his electoral mandate and by dint of, of his uh, powers of personal persuasion could overcome that problem. And uh, that's a mistake that he made. And he has now learned that he can't overcome that problem problem, or, you know, at least can't overcome it in the way he hoped he would. So uh, that's an interesting question as we head into year two. How will he adjust that strategy? Afwar, how do you assess Obama's performance, uh, you know, in, in international negotiations? I mean, Copenhagen, uh, very important, uh, of course, um, it wasn't a great success by any, any standards. No, I, it's true. And I, I'd agree with what's been said. But I think you can't win, really, can you? I mean, in, in the short term, and when we're watching events unfold, um, it is easy to be critical of his style. You know, he's not decisive enough. He's too cerebral. He seems a little detached. On the other hand, I don't remember anyone under Bush praising the Bush government for its decisiveness, which undoubtedly it was decisive. It made decisions um, really off the cuff about extremely important things without taking minor details like, you know, international law um, into account. So I think, you know, the way history regards that kind of decisiveness is not particularly kind. Um, And so watching in real time Obama in action, it is easy to be critical. But I suspect that in the long term, the implications of his kind of considered approach might bear fruit it just takes longer to unfold. But I'd agree that I think he, he has demonstrated a lack of um, political savvy in the way he's handled some of these things, which, again, I think is quite inevitable given his um, experience and also th- just the level of expectation that was raised about him. Let's talk now about how race has affected Americans' perception of President Obama. The Guardian's Gary Young has been to Kentucky, a part of the United States that voted overwhelmingly for John McCain in 2008. It's also been struggling for many years with a depressed economy. So I'm here in Obanan. There are 16 912ers. That's right. That's the right way to say it, isn't it? 912ers here. And I'm just going to throw out a few questions for you, but just a few. And I just want a show of hands real quick to see 
where you'd stand to give the rest of Britain and the rest of the world a, a sense of what you know what you're thinking is. Who of you believe that Obama is a Muslim? I think he's a Muslim. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven think he's a Muslim. Who of you think he's a Christian? So none of you think he's a Christian. A communist. How many of you think he's a communist? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And how many of you think he's a socialist? Eight, nine, ten. A Marxist. Wow. So, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven out of fourteen. So, ten for communists, ten for socialists, eleven for Marxists. How many of you believe he was born in the United States? None of you believe he was born in the United States. How many of you think that he's the legitimate president of the United States? Two, three. How many of you think he's not the legitimate president? So three, three think he's not and three think he is, and the rest don't know, I'm guessing. I have a comment about that question. Okay. Why are so many Americans skeptical about the legitimacy, um, the current president of the United States, as he's referred to? I think so many Americans are skeptical because during a normal election of a president of a country such as the United States of America, the media vets these individuals. They did not do any background reporting on this president that was elected. Um, he was elected on a rainbows and unicorns. Oh, everything's going to be great. You know, when he would have interviews, there were never tough questions. They were always, well, where did you get this fabulous outfit, Mr. President, you know, soon to be president? The questions were fluffy, they were easy, and they were, they were questions you would ask of a celebrity or a superstar in the movies, not questions that you would ask of someone who's going to lead the greatest country on earth. Uh, if, if you had one factual channel to go to, what would it be? Fox News. Fox News. Fox News. You, uh, would I be right in thinking that you think that Fox is the channel that gives you facts and not opinions? The most. The most. The most. They are still, they do have a bias, but they are more factual than other channels by far. I think the ratings reflect that. Gary Young with a clip from a forthcoming BBC World Service documentary. Afford, do you think that race relation, do you think that's still uh, important, the fact that he's a black president? And, and what does that mean a year on? Undoubtedly, and I, I think, um, you know, it's a kind of guilty confession, but I was quite pleased when um, some of the racist incidents that occurred in America came into the spotlight. Um, you know, he was heckled um, when he was speaking in the House, and uh, there was the incident after the arrest of um, the, uh, Louis Gates, Henry Louis Gates. And I think, I'm not pleased because these incidents have occurred, but just because commentators were so quick after his election to say that we now live in a post-racial society and that this shows that America is, is past racism. Um, and, it, you know, it's clearly not. And I think some of the way that he's been treated has very much demonstrated that race is still a factor. And if anyone can transcend that, it's him. But I think underestimating that is, is not a sensible thing. Thing to do, and then you know, in the wider context, looking at um, events here and, and in the rest of the world, um, I think the fact that there is a black man leading America is still very inspiring to many people, and the fact that we are now essentially analysing his performance as a statesman rather than as a black person um, is also a positive thing. He is now president, and, and that's that. And I think to be able to have a black person as such a senior figure who is being essentially regarded um, just as the most senior politician in the world rather than anything else is in itself a very powerful thing. Well, there's, a, there's an important point uh, coming in there because Obama seems in some of his speeches to be addressing the fact that uh, just 20 years ago, Americans 
Americans had a slightly ludicrous view of a unipolar world in which they would be the military, economic and cultural hegemon in the world. The Soviet Union had just collapsed in ignominy. And of course, rather like the end of history, that foolish uh, essay by Francis Fukuyama in Washington, D.C. at the time, uh, it's nonsense. And what we've seen in the last few years at a, an ever-increasing velocity is the rise of China. India too, but China uh, primarily. And you feel with Obama that he's acknowledging the uh, uh, fact that America now must play in a much more complex world in which the G7 becomes the G20. There's talk of a G2, just Beijing and Washington. Well, I don't think that'll hold. The BRICS, as they're called, the Russians and the Indians and uh, uh, the Chinese and other emerging major economies coming into play. But the irony of that is the more Obama talks, as you might call, of post-imperial America, then the more he enrages his deeply irrational critics at home, some of whom are convinced he's not even American. He was born on the American frontier in Hawaii. That's extraordinary enough. But then so was his opponent. John McCain was born in the Panama Canal Zone. Mrs. Palin in Alaska, come to think of it. But they're you know, trying to persuade themselves he must be Kenyan-born, the so-called birther fantasy. And this is all part of an immense distress. And the one thing that bothers me more than anything about all this is the violent and irrational nature of the uh, response um, among uh, elements of the American right, which uh, are pretty scary and pretty scary for America's future because it's got to adapt to this fast-changing world and you can't assume you're going to be number one forever or in many respects, or even number one now. Michael Tomaski, I've no doubt you'll agree with that. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, race is, uh, you know, it's very complicated to talk about because uh, there, there's not much provable that, that, that you can assert. And a lot of it is in the realm of the hypothetical. But it is true, uh, uh, I think this birther uh, movement uh, that exists in the United States, you know, that wouldn't exist uh, with a different kind of president. Uh, uh, and, I, and, so, uh, and it is true also that these Tea Party movements are, are virtually 100% white. And, uh, you know, they're all very careful not to say uh, racial things uh, in their meetings. Although every once in a while they slip up, as a man did a couple of weeks ago with a, with a sign he had outside a... Uh, outside a meeting. So they're very careful in general not to slip up, but you know, you just can't persuade me that race, you know, questions of, of race aren't all around this. And, and we see little, little glimmers of it that pop up every once in a while in, in supposedly benign ways. But I mean, the very fact that Obama was asked about Skip Gates at a press conference, and by the way, I think Obama answered that question quite badly. I don't know, not having been there and not seeing all the facts, what role race played in that, but I think it's fair to say, number one, any of us would be pretty angry. Number two, that the Cambridge police uh, acted stupidly. But the very fact that he was asked about it was like, okay, black man, account for this other black man. And I noticed just the other day that he was asked about Tiger Woods. Uh, okay, black man, account for this other famous black man. That's that's a weird assumption. You know, I don't I don't think uh, you know uh, uh, that assumption would be made about a white male president. I would agree with that, and I mean, it, some people have gone as far as to say that the attention that's been thrust at Tiger Woods is actually. Um, energy that that some people would like to direct towards Obama and, you know, 
just exposing and deconstructing of the supposedly, you know, yeah, clean black man. Um, And I mean, I think that's going a bit far, but there is some truth in that. Why should Obama have to answer for these other black men? Um, You know, the idea is that that, that they're all one and the same. Um, Another thing that I would just like to raise, and this is in in relation to recent events, is that watching Obama respond to what's happening in in Haiti, you can't help but draw comparisons to the response of the Bush regime um, to some natural disasters. And even looking at Katrina, which was on US soil, I think the compassion of Obama's response, and and it goes back to this, this, this just understanding of being part of a greater world. Um, I think that the compassion and the immediacy of his response and his ability to grasp um, what's happening in other countries and respond in a way that people can really relate to, I think it might seem like a simple thing, but you know, Bush didn't do that. And so the contrast is there. He grew up in Jakarta for three years. He grew up in a developing country. It's an astonishing thing for an American president that he lived in a Muslim country. Wow. <laughs> well, on that on that uh, note of astonishment, many thanks, Michael White in Westminster, Michael Tomaski in Washington, and here in London, Afro Hirsch. Phil Maynard was the producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.